Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hi everyone, Dr. Jennifer here. If you've been feeling frustrated in your sexual relationship, you don't feel there's the passion or aliveness that you've been seeking, that there's not enough romance or connection, consider enrolling in my Enhancing Sexual Intimacy course. I designed this course to help couples better understand the meanings that are operating between them that are killing the source of energy and passion in their marriage and what they can do to change that pattern, how they can create a sexual relationship that feels more authentic, more passionate, and more alive. Click on the link in my show notes to get more information about the course. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sharing Her Journey podcast. We are so very honored and excited to have Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife with us today. Yes, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. The short version of what she does is a relationship and sexuality coach. The long version is that she is a relationship and sexuality educator and coach, as well as a licensed clinical professional counselor in Illinois with a PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College. Very interesting, amazing person. Yes, and her work is fascinating. And I have been so impacted by the work that she has done. And so this conversation, just having her on the podcast was just really exciting and like an honor. So really happy to share this conversation with all of you. Hello, Jennifer. Hi. Jennifer, I am so happy you are here to have a conversation with us today. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. So here at Sharing Her Journey, we are all about women, helping women create connection with themselves and Mm -hmm. connection with other people. And we believe that we are more alike than we are different. And we want women to be able to feel that, like, just have the courage to live with integrity, brave Mm -hmm. the tough conversations of life and know and feel that they are the authors of their own lives. Mm And (laughs) amen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hallelujah. Yeah. And as like, as a student of your work, I mean, I've taken your online courses, I've attended a retreat and I've been a coaching client of yours. I just feel like your content really teaches those principles. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's something that I've gleaned from your work essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And so will you tell our audience, will you share with our audience who you are and what you do? Sure. So, so let me think that's a big question, but let me just start. So I'm, I'm Jennifer (laughs) and, um, yeah, I, my, um, I grew up as a Latter-day Saint and, um, was very, um, very much benefited from my faith community and also truly like giving me a sense of who I am, of what matters, of a God that cares about me. And at the same time, seeing some of the messaging and in particular around about who women are, that was troubling for me at a young age. And that is that I felt both cared about, but got the message that women are kind of the sidekicks of men, if we're being good women. And that our lives should be defined through other people's reality, that we're supporting husbands and leaders and children, and that that kind of self-sacrifice is godly and expected if you're going to be a good woman. And while I wanted to be a wife and a mother, and I and I valued my mother in those roles, meaning it made a difference in my life. And she was a highly impactful person on me. I was really ambivalent about occupying that role because of, I didn't have the language for this at the time, but I didn't want someone else to author my life. (laughs) I didn't want to give up my agency and my sense of self just because I loved someone else, just because I wanted to be married. And so my little self was trying to figure out how to deal with 
these kind of competing desires that I had or what felt like if I'm going to belong to myself, maybe I can't belong to others. I can't belong to a man, right? So a lot of my work has been about my effort starting, you know, in my probably my early adolescence um, into becoming an adult and being married and figuring out the role and the critical importance of learning how to author one's life. And that's true for men and women. But if we don't do that, the paradox is that we become incapable of intimacy. We can't, you know, our ability to deeply belong in a relationship is paradoxically completely correlated with our ability to belong to ourselves. And if we only do one or the other, I'll just belong to you, just I'll make you happy no matter what, the relationship will deteriorate. Or if we do the other, like, I don't care what you think, I'm doing what I want, uh, the relationship will deteriorate both to another person and to ourselves. So my work has been about, in particular, helping Latter-day Saints, kind of the, the community and family that has meant so much to me about how we can live up to the best in our theology, the best in our principles, and become people more capable of love and intimacy and happiness. Um, and so I do a lot of online teaching. And so I do online courses. I do um, a couple of podcasts. One is conversations like this, but also then one in which I'm working, doing couples coaching and applying a lot of these principles that I teach in my courses to the real life situations that couples encounter around intimacy and marriage and partnership. And the name of that podcast is Room for Two because the double entendre, of course, is you know the idea of getting a room for two, the sexual aspect of it, but also this idea that the best marriages really make room for two people to thrive. One doesn't dominate over the other. One doesn't succumb to the other person's mind as a way of keeping stability. They learn how Couples learn how to belong to the best in themselves, but make room for another person to thrive as well. So that podcast is about helping couples see how they're getting in their own way to their, to their happiness. That was really beautiful. <laughs> I, yeah, I just like loved every minute of everything you said. Um, I, and I also want to talk to you a little bit about like how you got to where you are as, as opposed to you know, studying, mm -hmm. studying to become a therapist and also how you were able to kind of change that narrative a little bit, because I was also raised in the LDS faith and I mm -hmm. had that narrative that you kind of talked mm -hmm. about of, yeah. um, and right now at 45, I'm trying to, you know, separate those, those, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. myself from that. So let's kind of go back to when you, you talked about as a youth and as an adolescent, and then mm -hmm. you, you went away to college. I heard you started, you started out studying design, which is, yes. which is fun. Cause I also do design myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So, so you started out. So what initially drew you to that? And then how did you switch into what you're doing or what you do? Yeah. I, I think I started in interior design because I loved it and I cared about it. And I felt more confident that I could be smart enough to get a design degree I, because I, I felt like I had to get a PhD if I was going to be a counselor. And I, I didn't know if I was capable enough to do it, nor did I know if I could, as a woman, do that legitimately within my community. So I think I started out in design because it felt safer to me. But I think two years into it, I did really enjoy it actually. But then I went on an LDS mission and I think seeing a lot of women suffering there, actually some women in abusive marriages, I think also getting more confidence in myself in that process of kind of believing in my own ability to think about what's true and real allowed me to come back and step into what I really wanted. And so I, when I came back, I switched my major to psychology and women's studies and um, knew I was gonna go the whole nine yards. I think once I stepped into the other, it, it became clear to me that I really wanted to be a therapist and be in the helping profession. Mm -hmm. So what helped you form the foundation for feeling comfortable to explore your own path? 
Mm-hmm. Especially at BYU. I'm like, especially at BYU, that probably would have been yeah. even harder because it's not your typical college liberal educational experience yes. kind of ex- yes yeah. i mean um let me see let me think about the most efficient answer <laughs> you know i i on the one hand i i think it's a little bit the way i was wired and it's a little bit the way that my family was i grew up in vermont liberal vermont in a conservative faith so i was always living in a dual in a, in a bicultural experience and what the, how that benefited me was that I got conversant in both worlds and I could see the other world through the lens of the opposite community, right? And so it allowed me to both understand how people work, which is that they create meaning frames that define and kind of make sense of themselves, but also a way of limiting their knowledge of other realities. So I got I kind of lived in that dual experience. I think I also knew um, in my family, my parent, we were very orthodox in the sense that we were highly involved in the religious community. My dad and mom occupied lots of leadership positions because there were so few Latter-day Saints in Vermont. So we were having primary at our house when I was little. I mean, we were, we helped build the chapel. We were heavily involved. Uh, we did food storage, gardening, I mean, all, everything, everything of them makes you a Latter-day Saint. <laughs> um, but ideologically, my parents were not very rigid. They were never saying things to me like, you know, you, you have to obey or you need to go pray about this and get the right answer. That just wasn't, there was more freedom to think and still belong. Mm-hmm. And so um I think my dad valued open inquiry. My mom, who was less educated, she just would love us kind of no matter what. My dad was a more demanding person. Like he he was more critical. My mom was more accepting, but there was a kind of a chemistry or an alchemy. I'm not sure what to call that, but like both that I couldn't, that there was room for me to be who I was and I would still be accepted, but a striving to kind of earn something or figure something out. So I think those were, that was some of the environment in which I was in. Um, and I, I think that when I learned about God, I think in part, because I projected my parents onto God, I really did believe in a God who loved me and could make room for me. Mm -hmm. So I remember being on at the MTC and being in some crisis, actually sitting in a testimony meeting having everybody get up and say that they knew everything was true. And I remember just thinking, is this what God wants from me? Like just to shut my mind down, say, I know everything's true that I don't. And God's just wanting a puppet, you know? (laughs) And I think that my mission was partly an effort to answer that question. And what was clear to me by the end was, that is not what God wants. God wants me to be honest and truthful and to discern and to align myself as best I can with what I, what, what I honestly believe to be true. And so I felt a kind of permission in my relationship with God that was very important for me, even though I was afraid to actually live up to that because when I came back to BYU, I was so afraid of the social costs of thinking and speaking more honestly, that I still try to kind of make what I knew would be acceptable, true. And then three more years of that, I was like, okay, I'm ready to start letting myself think more honestly and let God and reality teach me about what's true rather than trying to make something true that I could get validation within. And so that was a kind of personal decision that I think made a big difference in it because I was in this duality I I loved the church I still love it you know I love the people I loved my spiritual foundation in it I learned about God and that what we do matters at church and yet I was ideas like polygamy and LGBTQ issues and women's role relative to men, which we were much more 
unapologetic at that time about polygamy and women being deferential to men. We're now more, we're, we're a little more, you know, we still, now we use words like stewardship and partnership, but it's, how to say it, we're less blatant now. <laughs> we're trying to make, uh, make progress. But at the time, I couldn't reconcile those ideas with my integrity. And so I had to start saying there's a problem, at least for me. So what were, so then when you're noticing those pieces post-mission and you're in college and now you're, you know, three years out, what were those moments then for you that shape your perspective that help you say, no, I'm going for this. And actually I'm not just going for this. I want to be a sex therapist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That came a little bit later, but, um, because I was in my PhD program and I was asked to teach a human sexuality course to undergrad. So, and I was trying to come up with a dissertation topic and about to get married. And I think all those things were, you know, making me really want to figure this thing out of sexuality and LDS women's experiences. But, um, but the, going back to your, the core of your question, what allowed me, I don't know. I mean, that's, it's a good question. I think it's that I just couldn't fold in. I just thought I would die if I did like spiritually, emotionally, like I couldn't just fold into a man's life or just go along because I would lose myself and I just couldn't do it. And I think in some ways, one of the parts of my family experience, there were eight of us and, you know, I was accustomed to being weird in a sense, because here we were this Mormon family in, I mean, like I was like the only Latter-day Saint in my high school. I was accustomed to, and in some ways being different than my group. We also had to pay for everything that we had after age 12. Um, So I was kind of accustomed on some level to forging my own path. And yet a lot of the messaging I was getting, and there were things that were very uncomfortable for me about that. So I didn't like that. I mean, all my friends, they would go to the movies and their parents would pay for it. If I was going to go to the movies, I had to find a way to pay for it. Now, some people would say that's just like terrible. <laughs> and I would have agreed with you as an adolescent for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. The thing that was good about it was it did give me this sense of autonomy and figuring out how to sustain my own weight psychologically. So like my parents were not looking over my shoulder at my grades. It, what didn't belong to them, it was me. You know, it was my education, my path. So yet I was getting messages at church about kind of folding into a man's life, folding into and supporting other people's aims. And I think there was an incongruity for me in that, that did not feel bearable. I just couldn't do it. So I think in part, because I had found another reality that felt good, it felt good to go and and study hard and get good grades and kind of belong to my own gifts and capacity. And I just couldn't see handing it all over to fold into a man's dreams. And so it just felt intolerable, I think. I, I didn't really have language for it. I just couldn't do it. And this was at a time when, when we were being, when President Benson had talked about women needed to come home and out, out of the workplace. At BYU, there was a lot of focus on women shouldn't be getting an education beyond, you know, if, if you get a marriage proposal, you know, it's time to st- step off the education track and the career track and into that other role. So the way I handled that was just put my head down, study hard and pretend I don't see any boys. Like I, the last thing I wanted was to fall in love with somebody because then I would lose my agency. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't until I was in my PhD program that I really opened my heart up. And shortly after I met John, right? Yeah. And so it's, it was like my strategy of saying, I'm, I'm trying, nobody's actually offered, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not disobeying here. I'm <laughs> finding my way to not lose myself. So do you think that that was like intentional or looking back, you can, you understand the moves you made? Yeah, it wasn't. I, I wasn't sort of admitting it to myself, but I, it was intentional, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I was thinking about, and I even, I remember being at BYU one day and I passed some sign or something in the Wilkinson Center 
that brought up Boston. And I just remember thinking, that's where I'll find a man that can handle me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the East Coast. <laughs> I did. I really thought that I thought, you know, if I marry somebody who's because I, I felt that I was somewhat of a threat to some of the men that were interested in me at BYU because I wasn't going to be that kind of slide into your life kind of woman. Mm -hmm. And so I did get some men who kind of chastised me for that, you know, mm -hmm. but then I knew they were not the one for me. <laughs> yeah. I knew I, this answers it. No need for another date. Yeah. So, um, mm -hmm. so one of my favorite stories actually, and I, I don't know where, in what context I heard you say it was, um, you know, after you've met your husband, John and, but I, I actually don't know. I don't know that I know the conversation around it. So developing your last name, because mm. I remember being a kid, I was a teenager actually. And I remember like, there's only one boy in my family. And mm. I thought that the name is going to, I'm not gonna be able to carry on my last name. And I remember telling my grandmother, I I'm going to make my husband take my last name. And she, mm. you know, and I remember some people around me just kind of giggled like, yeah, right. Lex, that's not happening. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good luck. And so will you tell us kind of the story sure. around developing your last name? Sure. I mean, I think my plan had been at that point in my life that I would socially become my husband's name, right? Which is Finlayson mm -hmm. and then professionally stay five. So it was kind of my way of trying to hold on to my birth name, but share a name with my husband. And so when John and I got engaged, in, and it really was coming right down to it. I just said to him one evening, we were sitting on the couch and I said, I just don't think I can do it. Like, I actually love your name. Like Finlayson is a beautiful name. I love you, but I just, it just feels wrong that because I love you, I become your name. It symbolically feels off to me. So John said, you know, I can understand that. And he said, the only thing is that I'd like to share a name. Like, I wish we had a shared name. And so he, he proposed it. He said, what if we take each other's name and we're just a hyphenated name together? And so I was a little taken aback. Like I, I felt like, wait, can I do that? Can I ask that of him? I mean, he was volunteering it. I wasn't, you know, but I still felt kind of unfeminine. <laughs> you know what I, mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm just kind of teasing a little bit, like women aren't supposed to ask things of men, you know, right. that kind of idea. Yeah. You're not supposed to ask men to sacrifice for women. Women are supposed <laughs> to, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, anyway, but I, but he meant it. And, um, and so I thought about it for a day or two. And then I said, I, I love that idea. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. it's just like, I remember when you shared, I, I, there's a lot of women who have hyphenated last names, but mm -hmm. that when you shared that he also has the hyphenated yeah. last name was just really, I mean, that was really cool. Jennifer. I yeah. Was like, That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. It says a lot about who he is actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it's true. It's all consistent with who he is. Mm -hmm. In your journey, then you are over in Boston and you're doing graduate work there. And that's when you knew you wanted to be a sex therapist. Well, I don't even think I knew that until I was actually practicing. And that, so that is to say, I was trying to come up with a dissertation topic. And that had been a question in my mind, because I, growing up in the church, found a sense of protection and security in the expectation of men to bring sexuality to marriage. Because in the larger culture, I actually felt bad for some of my non- religious friends, because I think they felt pressured to be sexual, to kind of prove themselves or to prove they're cool and, you know, and acceptable to the men they were dating. And I just felt grateful that I got, that I didn't have to navigate that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I had friends getting married, uh, Latter-day Saint friends getting married who were saying, don't get married for sex. It's not that great, you know, or a friend who was my age when I was teaching this class who did not know what a clitoris was, did not know her own anatomy. And so there was, I had friends getting married who were not transitioning happily into marriage. 
who were ignorant about their own bodies, ambivalent about their own pleasure. So I was also trying to figure out that problem. Like how do these, you know, what is, what is Latter-day Saint women's experience? What are feminists right that they're repressed and suffering? Or is, are we right culturally that there is protection in it? Right. So my dissertation research was my attempt to get more clarity about who were the women that were thriving and who were not. Mm-hmm. Was the feminist critique I had studied and knew that patriarchies suffocate women's sexuality? Was that a true critique? And if so, in what way? And if not, in what way? And so, so that was my research. And I, and then you know, right when I opened my practice, which was years later, because I got my degree, but then I was home for a bit with my kids. Um, I was interviewed about my dissertation research. And then that really, a lot of people started seeking me out uh, in an attempt to get help. Um, A lot of Latter-day Saints were trying to get help for their own struggles with sexuality, accepting their own sexuality, and creating an intimate marriage. So do you feel like your experience in that, in your, in doing your dissertation, was that a good experience for you or did you receive some backlash for that? I mean, it was definitely a good experience for me in terms of just my own development, my own thinking. Um, did I get backlash? Um, no, not when I was writing it. Cause not that many people knew about it. I think it probably made some people nervous, um, that I was asking those kinds of questions, but I, I, I think what was maybe somewhat harder for me was reading some of the conference talks and lessons that reinforced a really the idea that women's sexuality is subject to men's. That is that women's sexuality exists to keep men from destroying themselves. (laughs) That kind of idea. And uh, because of their sexuality, that men's sexuality was legitimate, but you know, women's was there to reinforce men. And so those kinds of messages felt damaging and distressing, right? And so that caused some turmoil in me to figure out what my relationship was going to be to the church, to what I would consider false traditions within. I mean, I, I grappled with that all my whole life and earlier, especially on my mission. And I'm, but it was like another layer of, of question. So but I have to say, you know, at the time, my dissertation committee, when I was at my defense saying, you have to publish this, you've got to get, they, none of them were LDS, but they're like, you've got to get this information into your community because they need it. They need to see how you thrive or what messages do not help people. But I couldn't think of a legitimate way to do it because at the time I didn't, Desmond Book was never going to publish this in my view, I thought. And and then if it was like an alternative, then it would be like in the alternative, like kind of threat to Latter-day Saint literature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I didn't know how to get the message out there. And I just kind of put that away. And then when I opened my practice, you know, eight or nine years later, um, then there was the internet and there was um, podcasting. And so there just became a way for people to hear about what I was doing and so on. So it, it but, you know, I've gotten some backlash. I mean, I've gotten some people who sent me hate mail and things like that. But really, for the most part, I have not. I've just There's been so much need for it. And so many people that are trying to both have their faith and their sexuality, to have a moral anchor and happiness. <laughs> and so to have someone articulating the dilemmas and offering a way to reconcile those two, I think has been mostly just welcome. Mm-hmm. So in your experience, do, do you feel like religious women struggle more with their sexuality just in general? It's a little hard for me to say because I haven't been really working with non-religious women. So I don't, you know, and my research wasn't a comparative study between religious and non-religious. Okay. I mean, I really think the struggle with sexuality is a very human problem. You know, a lot of people are having their first sex drunk or in some way intoxicated because of the anxieties of really being present and sexual. 
-hmm. because that's so fundamental to being at peace with ourselves. And a lot of us are not at peace with ourselves, not at the point that we first have sex. So I think the, the cultures that we're embedded in are going to shape the way we play out some of those insecurities and anxieties. There certainly are some messages that are far more helpful than others. But even within an LDS context, the way the family related to not just sexuality, but to one's sense of self had a, has an enormous amount to do with it. Like the women that thrived, it wasn't necessarily that they got sex positive messages. Some of them didn't get many messages at all, but they belonged to their sense of self. Their, the self-authoring was clear. I matter. I matter as much as my husband does. My pleasure, of course, is as important as his. My sexuality belongs to me. So even if they were making very conservative choices, that wasn't the issue. The issue was whether or not they felt that they were really co-operators, like that they were as they were equal in their sense of self to their partner. That was the biggest deal. And even if they said my husband is the leader in the home and all that stuff, it, it wasn't in effect true. They were actually collaborators. And then there were some women I interviewed who were like, oh, I'm a feminist and I, you know, women and men are equal, but they didn't act as if that were true. And so a lot of times the language that they claimed was sometimes different than how they actually, what their behavior was actually demonstrating. And it was the women who lived a kind of equality that did the best. Mm -hmm. I love all of Jennifer's work. Mm -hmm. I'm like just sitting here listening, like, oh, it's like listening to one of her courses over here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one of the things mm -hmm. I've always been kind of curious about um, is you quote Dr. David Schnarch a lot. And mm -hmm. even some of the work that when I was learning from you, you know, you recommended a couple of his books, which I mm -hmm. like have been reading and have really enjoyed. So how did you mm -hmm. become acquainted and get connected with Dr. David Schnarch? Mm -hmm. Well, um, when I was like in my first year of marriage, there was a uh, psychotherapy conference in DC. John had relatives that were there that we kind of wanted to go visit anyway. And so the two of us just took a trip to DC and I went to this multi-day conference and David Schnarch had just um, published the book, Passionate Marriage and was presenting. And I knew um, given that I would, I think I had I was writing my dissertation at that point, I think. I'm trying to remember the timing. Yeah, I must have been writing it at that point. And he had written about marriage and sexuality. I was interested in his presentation. So I went in and I listened. And the way he was talking about marriage and personal development and just so many things just was like true, true, true. Like it just was resonating with my experience. You know, people talk about the spirit confirming. And <laughs> I'm like, this is a big deal what he's saying here. So it really struck me as important. And I remember thinking like, if I ever have the chance to train with him, I want to do that. And he also said some ideas in that conference that were personally meaningful for me and shaped how I was in the marriage. And that was, so one of the ideas that he, that Dr. Schnarch brought up in that presentation was that oftentimes we struggle to actually tolerate the intimacy that's available to us or to tolerate the love that's available to us. And I knew when he was saying that, that that was true and that I was doing what he was saying, which was in reality, my husband loved me. I knew it was true, but I kept trying to control it, kind of keep myself at arm's length. Like in some ways he valued me above what I could accept. And so I kept trying to kind of diminish it or be the one who was invested less than him as a way of minimizing my exposure. And I, I understood what I was doing and that I needed to stop it. And so that was just an idea that I remember going home and talking to him about it and literally practicing opening my heart up and just letting myself tolerate the exposure of letting him care about me without guarantee, right? So it's also because it impacted my life and impacted my marriage. And, um, and so then when I opened my practice years later, 
I saw that he was doing a training in Colorado. And so I went to it and then I had no idea what he was talking about the training. Everybody else seemed to know what was going on. <laughs> I was like, this is so above my capacity right now. <laughs> but I stuck with it and got better at it, understanding it and and even teaching it now. So, so are yeah. you talking about like the frame, like the frame at which he comes at yes. issues? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. And the way he would, you know, role play working with a couple and the way he was talking about what people were doing, it's just very different than a typical psychotherapy frame. And so it was, it was, it was like, he was speaking a different language. It was almost incomprehensible to me. I was, it was like, trying to figure out what's going on. I, I remember raising my hand and saying, uh, I don't even know if this question is a good question. <laughs> I just remember being like, I don't even know what we're talking about. But <laughs> he was very nice about it. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was, it was definitely stretching me, but it felt like very, like a valuable way to be stretched. I knew it was pushing my thinking and pushing my morality in a sense. And I wanted it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that is a lot of, I mean, you work with a lot of couples and, and focus on sexuality. Do you feel like that is a, a big, like a big barrier to intimacy is not letting, like you said, not letting them actually see who they are. Yes. And do you feel that? Cause I know some people that are close to me that I, I feel like they, feel like they have to be, especially in a religious setting, like they have to be this person. Right. And so like, how do you open yourself up to the other person? If you feel like you have to be this way because of your religious community. Right. So that's absolutely the work I'm doing is helping people see the, what they are doing. Okay. Like we tell ourselves stories about what we're doing and then we do what we do. And there's often a large discrepancy (laughs) between what we tell ourselves and what we in fact do. And, you know, people say sex is Satan's playground, but I think it's in that discrepancy because we tell ourselves ideas about who we are and what we want that allow us to keep enacting lesser realities and keep ourselves from growing. So a lot of my work is waking people up to what they're doing. So to your point of, you know, a lot of women have learned, well, I'm supposed to be the guard, the guardian of virtue here in our sexual relationship, for example, that's one version of it. So I've got, I can't let myself think and feel sexual if I need to be managing his sexuality. And, or I can't let myself really open up and be knowable because what if I'm not enough? What if I'm not, what if I'm not sufficient? But a lot of times we were just doing it instinctively rather than recognizing I am, and that's what happened to me in the conference. I am trying to keep control in a way that's immature and destructive, and I can't keep doing it. It's not fair. It's not nice. And I don't want to be that kind of person. So once I could see what I was doing, then I had the ability to go and try to do it differently, step into the dark. And so what my work is, is about helping people wake up because it increases their agency because you can't change what you can't see. So you don't even know you're doing it. How can you change it? Even though it's still having impact on how you feel about yourself, how you feel in your marriage, how you feel in your sexual relationship. So that's my work is seeing better than the people I'm working with can see and seeing how they induct each other into the blindness There's often a collusive reality in couples and families, because as long as everybody abides by the rules, you can all stay blind. And one starts breaking the rules as in, you know, not being as validation dependent or starts saying things that are true, you know, but the family doesn't want to deal with or something, then that can often push the family to to kind of get the other person to go back into their blindness because growth is uncomfortable. And so we're very good at instinctively keeping the meaning systems going that we know, even if they keep us unhappy. Yes. So, and I, before I ask my next question, I, I 
feel like I should have said this at the beginning, but I am a big believer that even though you focus on helping LDS couples, your work is um, so universal. Like I tell my friends who are not members of the LDS church, Jennifer's work is applicable within any structure of relationship. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're very human principles. Yes. That's right. So, I mean, you're also talking about just now, as you're kind of describing working with couples, they come with you with all, um, varying levels of desires to be present and self confront. Mm -hmm. I'm, I would imagine, I mean, I know what it was like for me and my husband sitting working with you. And I know for me, I was sitting there like, tell me, Jennifer, tell me what I can't see. Cause I want, I want to see it. And yeah. so, but what is it like for you when couples or one of the people that you're working with is resisting that self-confrontation? Like they're resisting what you're offering for you as the coach, you know, online mm-hmm. or therapist in person, what is that like for you when they're resisting it? Well, it's less fun. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because it's, it's um, harder work because, you know, it, it means I have to be self sustaining enough to hold what's true, even if they are pushing back. It means I have to work harder to sustain my own mind. And I have to figure out like, am I wrong? And that's why they're pushing back? Or am I right? And that's why they're pushing back? So, so that's, it's even that kind of like figuring out there, I'm getting all the invalidation. They may be getting upset. And so that self-regulation while you're with another person. Okay. Like I get to work that muscle. Um, it's also sometimes people will rather than self-confront, you know, will attack or they will go and change the topic and pull in all the data about how they're a victim as the way of trying to get it onto the turf that they can prevail on. And my, my mind has to to stay awake to like, are they, are they prevaricating? Are they moving to, an, or is this data that I need, right? That I'm missing. And so it just, it requires a lot of work and staying awake and looking at my own blind spots or where I want to be like, oh, no, 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 you're a nice person. Never mind. You know, like, <laughs> that would be easier. They'd like me better. You know, we, <laughs> and, and so the, the work that I have to do often is figuring out, you know, what's my job here. Um, cause I do have a job to do It's to help people see what they can't see. And if I blink, you know, if I step away because they're upset or because, they don't want to deal. It means I'm betraying my job. Um, but it does also mean like, am I right? Or am I wrong? Am I, is it, you know, and that can be, that pressures my thinking and pressures me to look at myself and, you know, I do it imperfectly. Uh, I've, but it's been a very valuable process for learning how to anchor into my own soul better while doing my job and um, recognizing that other people have choices. They don't have to deal, obviously, with what I'm saying. Um, They don't have to self-confront. Some people would rather take everybody else down than look at themselves. Other people have courage and people that have even come from pretty hard situations that it's touching to me the courage they have to face themselves as dark as it might be sometimes. And so that's one of the things that's been striking to me is the courageous are often, they're hiding, they they are everywhere. That is to say, sometimes the people that have actually been given a lot are shockingly lack courage (laughs) to deal with relatively small things. Some people who have much more to face, both the dark they've come out of or the dark they're recreating, can be tremendously courageous. They really want to be better. Mm -hmm. So it also pushes me to be better because, you know, it's easy for me to see it. I don't know, easy, but like that's one of my capacities is to be able to see it. It's also easier to see it when you're not doing it. You know, I'm my own blind spot. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, it's one thing to name it and to help people recognize something in themselves, 
but the really hard work is facing it and letting our ego be sacrificed on the altar of integrity and honesty. That's hard. Mm-hmm. And I have tremendous respect for people who live like that because, you know, they're the salt of the earth. They're the ones that make the world better. And so it's, it's really meaningful work. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious if, if you don't mind talking just a smidge as we're talking about really, for me, so much of your journey is about learning how to trust yourself and really, um, really being able to validate who you are and, and all of your processes along the way. I know that I have had a lot of conversations with, with adults over the years about differentiation, because I feel like differentiation is linked with being able to self-validate and feeling like -hmm. you can trust yourself. So, Mm -hmm. but a lot of adults have a hard time differentiating from their parents as adults. Yes. And I'm just curious if you would speak to why that is so hard or why that can be hard for adult children to differentiate from their parents and move from a position of wanting to please their parents to being, um, being in a position of, mm, what's the word, like uh, an honest relationship with their parents in who Mm -hmm. they are and and in that piece. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the reasons why it's hard is it's such an important relationship. Um, And so the relationships that are really defining to our sense of self are going to be the ones that are the hardest to be honest in, right? You know, like when I, you know, been on a ski lift with somebody and they find out I'm a therapist, well, they'll tell me all kinds of things. They can be super <laughs> honest because at the top of that ski lift, they're, we're going down different hills and we'll never see each other again. <laughs> and so it's very easy to share when you, when there's no, there's no consequence in a sense, but when, when you're honest, if you need people to approve of you, it's very hard to be honest. It's hard to be true to who you are because we need those connections. Like human beings, excuse me, as David Schnarch talks about, we want two things in life. We want to belong to other people and we want to belong to ourselves. And there's a fundamental tension in that, that drives differentiation in our attempt to reconcile it. So, um, so parents are a big deal because they are forming of your mind and your sense of self from the beginning. And so if you have parents that exploit that dependency on some level, that they are managing their sense of self through you being the child that makes them feel good about themselves or makes them feel in control or makes them feel that they're better than their spouse or something like that, right? You know, parents can, we can easily do these things because our children look to us unquestioningly, especially when they're very young. And so it's easy to use without even knowing. And so if you grow up in that and you have a sense of equilibrium with your parent by being that child, the problem is a lot of uh, adolescents and young adults start feeling like I, that isn't me. I feel too constrained by it. I feel too much like I have to take care of mom or take care of dad. And so they're trying to get a sense of belonging to themselves. And parents that have integrity and courage will say, okay, I see what you're talking about, or I can see my role in your struggle. I can see what I've been doing and they self-correct. So if you're fortunate enough to have parents that will self-confront, right, or a partner that will self-confront, or you will, you know, that's a tremendous gift because it means they'll be like, wait, that's my mess. Let me get that. That's not yours because it's clarifying. Um, But if you have parents that won't or will double down that you're a rotten kid, you know, because you won't keep doing what you've always been doing, a lot of people are up against you know, if I'm going to belong to the people that matter to me, I can't belong to myself. I can't belong to what's true. And so that can be very painful and sometimes may just go back to sleep as a way of trying to not face the horror and the fear of self-defining in a system that will make you pay for that. Um, It's also about habit. 
you know, when you get so accustomed to thinking of yourself in a certain way, it often takes crisis in people's lives to really see something and really deal with it. Because so much of what we know, we just kind of keep bumbling along and there's not too big of a price. And we just, the, and the price of changing it is so big that we just kind of do what we know. But when people come into a crisis of meaning, that's often when their brains get more flexible, they're trying to solve it and climb out of the pit that they're in. And that's often when meaningful brain change happens and relational change happens. And so crises have a real utility in them. You know, the, even in a spiritual sense, the idea of a fall is the way we move up in our development. That's mm -hmm. very much true in my experience of working with people. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, oh, I have a random question. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I just feel like you've, you've been on a lot of podcasts. Is there anything that our listeners like that people don't know about you? Or is there a current current book you're reading that you're loving? Mm. Just kind of curious. Oh, um, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of things people don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite hobby or even, or even like a book you're reading, I think would be fascinating. Yeah. Well, just speaking of this idea of falling, I, I mean, I'm working on a book right now. So I've been reading a lot of books about um, spiritual development and adult development. Um, but a book that I read recently that I loved is called Falling Upwards. Oh, gosh, yeah. With by Richard, Richard Rohr. Rohr. Yeah. And I just love that the kind of what the spiritual journey is. And um, kind of after the fall, you know, sort of in adult development what spirituality often looks like for people. So it's a lovely book. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything that. Well, tell us about your book. While <laughs> yeah. You're thinking. Like, yeah. Oh, like a book, about like your book. Any sneak, oh, sure. peek, any sneak peek concepts that you're, <laughs> yeah. Sure. When's it, when's it going to come out? Well, we'll see. I'm we're hoping early next year. Um, it's um, let me think what's the, so the, the title of the book is going to be something along the lines of that they might have joy. Uh, spirit, sexuality as a path to spirituality for Latter-day Saints, something like that. We'll see. Maybe it'll be something entirely different, but that's kind of the working title right now. And I'm just looking at a lot of the first half of the book is about the way that we have been stuck in our, in our kind of inherited belief that sexuality and spirituality are two different things that they can't be reconciled and really an articulation of how they are reconciled and why they ought to be reconciled and how our theology supports a reconciliation, a deep one. Um, and how much that's connected to joy, the ability to love, the ability to know and be known. And so I'm just offering, and then how we might, the last chapter is on how we can teach our children and our youth and ourselves differently around these concepts. And I'm weaving stories of clients I've worked with into it and where people get stuck, a very typ typical ways that people get stuck and also how people work their way into a higher way of living and loving and, and even a higher version of faith. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds good. I mean, I'll mm -hmm. definitely be purchasing the book, Jenna. <laughs> Yeah, let's count on that. Um, <laughs> so Ed, you, you shared that you have your room for two podcasts. So will you share with us what the format is for that podcast? What makes it unique and how this podcast impacts you as a relationship coach? Mm. Well, it's been really fun to do. I mean, it's been probably more fun than I had anticipated the, what it's a subscription podcast. And then we pull from people that are subscribers, they can apply to be on the podcast anonymously. Um, so we do pseudonyms and voice alter slightly through the sound um, editing. And, um, and people tell their stories. And <clears throat> these are stories of places where they're stuck. Um, issues of infidelity, sometimes issues of pornography issues of um, working out an equal relationship where one has kind of had their life subsumed by another, how to grow out of sexual anxieties. These are all kind of themes that come up. And so I'm working with the couple in front of others, you know, you get to kind of 
sit there and be on the other couch listening <laughs> in a sense to how, you know, I'm advising what is happening in the marriage and what they each can do differently, what they each need to face in themselves. I think the thing that's been maybe a little surprising in the feedback is how much people, first of all, find the stories to be a powerful teacher because you know, my online courses, I'm teaching a lot of principles and I give examples, of course, in those courses, but this is like another layer of another level of walking into a story that people often see themselves in it. You know, I've heard people say like, I listen to the first one, I'm like, oh, that's me. And I listen to the second one, like, oh no, okay, that's us. That's us. The third one, like, no, oh my gosh, that's totally. <laughs> and, and so, you know, because we're all human and we all do human things, you know, we can see ourselves, um, so that's a, you know, that's just a, a, a an effective way of getting coaching. And one of the challenges the challenges that I've had is that I have way more people wanting coaching than I can deliver services to. So that's where the idea came from was like, how can I give people more access without trying to actually have that many private meetings with people? So, um, mm -hmm. so that's what the format is. Yeah. yeah. It also seems like it would be an affordable way to get therapy because yeah. a lot of um, people can't afford yeah, therapy. Because yes. her online, the the subscription is $99. Yes, um, 97. What? 90, oh, 97. 97. Pardon. Pardon me. $97. And I know my husband Clinton and I listen and I love it. I yeah. experience just like what you're talking about, where I'm listening and there is something within there that I'm like, that's, I can see myself doing that. Yes. Yep. And then yep. another couple and, and really, I mean, when I'm listening, not only do I feel like I am learning from the couple, but I'm also, um, quite touched by just the compassion that you share that you mm. can, you know, that you can convey over, just through those sessions. Mm. And so one of the things I've been curious about in listening to it is how do you determine if you invite someone back or not? So generally Kirsten, you get one session mm -hmm. with Jennifer, mm -hmm. one kind of hour long session. And then, then she will bring in another couple, but sometimes mm -hmm. you, Jennifer invite couples to come back. So what's yeah. the determinant for, for you there? I've been doing a little bit more of inviting people back because people were giving feedback on one of the couples. I can't remember their pseudonym right now, but I saw them four times in a row and people said that was so helpful because they could watch the couple um, changing and dealing mm -hmm. with themselves and having a different level of a conversation by the fourth meeting. So I've been trying to invite back more a little bit, but if, if I see a couple's not really going to self confront very much, or I, I don't have a feeling of them being workable in an immediate sense, Mm -hmm. then I'm usually not going to invite back. If I think the issue they brought in is pretty much wrapped up. I mean, I know it sounds a little strange to say it's wrapped up, but I'm giving the perspective that they need to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, that might be a decision why I would only do it once. Um, so I don't actually know. It's more just like a gut. Like, yeah, um, <laughs> I don't really yeah. have like a, oh yeah, this is what I do. But it, it's... Um, yeah. If, if one person seems there because their spouse dragged them there, um, even though they both, you know, consented and said they wanted it, that would, that would, that would keep me from inviting them back again. If I don't think I have a collaborative alliance with both people. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. how has that podcast, how has that experience impacted you then as a relationship coach? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think the thing that's maybe a little challenging about it is um, knowing that my limitations and blind spots are available for anyone to see. I'm just going to say it's not <laughs> right? in the privacy of one. Yeah, I don't have that in my own office. Yeah, uh, but that's okay. That's what I'm asking of other people. So I can be imperfect in it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're very well articulated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I totally love it. So Jennifer, I'm just curious, your family has traveled well, a couple, not that long ago, you took your, you took all of your yeah. kids and you went over to Europe for a year. Right? Yeah. We went all around the world. We didn't. So my, this was pre COVID about three years ago. Um, we decided 
because of you know the varying places our kids were in academically and so on, because my husband and I both work online, that we were going to take the show on the road. And so we went, we were in Europe for maybe one, two, well, we were in the UK for a couple months. Uh, we were in Europe for three months. Um, we were in, you know, we were in New Zealand and Australia and Asia. So Africa, but it was amazing. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really so grateful we did it. Mm-hmm. So what did you learn about yourself in that process with that experience or one thing? What was and one I guess thing? That was probably good timing before COVID. Yeah. yeah good timing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. That would be so hard to do. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to think uh, what I learn. I, I don't really think of it that way. I, I feel more like I learned so much about the world. Um, so how do, so if you don't think about it that way, then what way do you think about I mean, it? Yeah. Well, I, I think about it as a remarkable experience to just go and sort of live within other communities. And I mean, we weren't deeply integrated into these communities. Of course, we were um, there in an Airbnb for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time. But um, it was just remarkable to experience humanity in lots of different places and languages and histories. And to see, I think maybe seeing ourselves in context a little bit more of that. It also changed the way I would hear the news. Like we spent three weeks in Turkey. And so when I would hear about some crisis in Turkey, it's like, I just, felt it at a different level because they're like real people. Now, of course I knew that before I went, but you feel it at a different level, even hearing about things in Syria. Like, even though I hadn't been to Syria, it's like, Oh, like these are real people that feel just like me mm-hmm. going through this trauma. So yeah, it kind of, it, I think it just, it broadens your view of, I mean, so that's probably what the impact was. Uh, you know, I'd traveled before that, but it was also very good for my kids, I think, to just have that meaning context. And so, you know, my daughter is talking about as they learn about things and they were actually there, you know, that's, it gives it a real, it just gives it a different meaning to learn about some historical reality. And they've spent time in that country or with those people. It's a, changes how you integrate it. Mm -hmm. I love that. Okay. So our final question that we ask all of our guests is who is a woman past or present that has impacted your life and how? Mm. Well, the woman that comes to mind is my mom. You know, she's a force in her own right. I mean, she just, um, I'll say a little bit about my mom. First of all, she was a deeply accepting person and she just uh, is very celebratory of her children. And that's a real gift because even though we thought, you know, mom may not really know, maybe I'm not as smart as she thinks. <laughs> like, you know, we kind of understood it as kids that she was biased. It still was very foundationally important to feel that kind of acceptance and being valued right? That she was in love with us in a sense as little children. And that's, that's really valuable. I think it's also just watching my mom be willing to live honestly, live on, acknowledge things about herself, acknowledge limitations that have maybe been hurtful or difficult and just being willing to continue growing. You know, my my um, dad passed away two years ago and she was very involved in his care for several years before he died. After he died, I think it was a real loss of his presence, a loss of, of, an, of a goal. I mean, of a focus, I guess is the right word. But in the, after about a year of grieving and kind of metabolizing that loss, my mom, not long after went and signed up for dance classes my mom is 90 years old and she is doing dance. Okay. (laughs) And, and, and she's doing it very, very well. And I guess my point in saying that is she's like going every single day and learning 
to do the samba and all these like Latin dances and stuff. <laughs> and so I'm watching video of her and thinking, that's amazing. And that's a, that's a very, like my mom would be the first to acknowledge that, you know, that I figured some things out that she hadn't been able to figure out. But very importantly, she's happy I've been able to do that. She's supports that I've been able to do that. She doesn't need to say she got it all right. And so there's just a kind of core, honest humility in my mom, but a willingness to also keep growing and striving. That's just been, it's, it's easy to, to not see the gifts you have because they're just, because they're just there. And so it's easy to go blind to them, but none of us operate in a vacuum and so much of what I'm able to do has a lot to do with who my mom is and, and how she's loved me. Oh, I love that, Jennifer. I can see why she's been so impactful for you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It really just fills my heart to have you here Mm. and to share you with our community is really meaningful for me. I'm so glad. I agree. Thank you so much. It was so great to meet you and, and learn from you. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.